Numbers chapter 26 is where we're at, 26 and 27. Uh, Many people would recognize Numbers chapter 26 as uh, being the beginning of a second major portion with 1 to 25, chapters 1 to 25, really kind of looking at the old generation, um, the ones that came out of Egypt. And uh, there's a lot of failures in Numbers chapters 1 to 25, but chapters 26 to 36 focus on the next generation. And I believe that that's uh, exactly what we see happening here. One breath of fresh air when you come to uh, this is that uh, you're done with all of the wilderness failures. As a matter of fact, when uh, chapter 26 begins, it says, now it came about after the plague. What plague is that? Chapter 25 is where you had Balaam, the false prophet, uh, uh, helped to introduce a bunch of Canaanite prostitutes to all the people of Israel, to all the men of Israel, and they began sinning against God, and God struck them, and there was a plague of 24,000 people. Uh, One writer here says this, the plague of chapter 25 was not just another plague, it was the final judgment of God on that first generation. The old generation is passing away. It's time to prepare the new generation for the conquest of the land of Canaan. Now, you know, as you look at these chapters, 26 to 36, you know, it's all looking ahead to um, moving in to take the land of Canaan. So what I've done is just kind of broken it down thematically, is looking at a series of eight steps that they are going to be taking to prepare for the conquest of the land of Canaan. Tough times are still ahead, you know, and they're going to have, you know, major wars they're going to have to fight. Tough times are ahead, but, you know, God's grace is going to bring them through it, just as God's grace was bringing it, bringing through it over the last 40 years, you know. Um, the lesson, God's grace is always at work. So verses, uh, chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, we have um, the first step to prepare for taking the land. We're going to look at the first two steps tonight. And, um, you know, again, this is, we're looking at some really large units, and I'm pulling it together. So, you know, my approach here on this is going to be to uh, just try to read the text, make some brief observations, pull out the theological uh, gold nuggets, make application of it for ourselves. Um, But, you know, I'm covering large sections because this is not the kind of thing that you want to, you know, you don't want to do this, you know, three verses at a time, you know. (laughs) Not the kind of thing you do that with. So what you come to here in chapter 26 is that there's a new census. We had the first census back in chapter 1. Now we come to another census. Now, what's a census all about? The census primarily is dealing with the fact that you need to know who can go to war. So it's dealing with men over 20 years of age. Now, back in chapter 1, the census was... uh, that, that's really what it was all about, was going to war. This one right here, though, really kind of has three objectives. It does deal with um, who you can conscription for war. But secondly, it also shows us um, remarkably how God has graciously preserved Israel over the 40 years. But then there's a third lesson that we can get out of this, and it would be the fact that God tells them that he's preparing them, this generation, this is all going to be about land inheritances, um, you know, as soon as they, you know, get into the land, it's going to be time to start sectioning off the land. 
for inheritance. And that's what this census does right here. So we're going to start off in verses 1 to 4. And then, like I said, we're going to make some comments and observations. So beginning here in chapter 26, verse 1, it came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from 20 years of old, old upward by their father's households. Whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord has commanded Moses. Now, the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were... So again, what we see here is that uh, we're preparing for military conquest. Verses 5 to... Uh, 65 is where you actually see the breakdown of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, just uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of kind of like, you know, where these 12 tribes, we know that the 12 tribes came out of 12 sons from Jacob. We read about Jacob having a daughter by the name of Dina. He very well might have had other daughters as well. But uh, we see that there are 12 sons. Now, Jacob, as best as I can tell, as I pull together chronologies of the Bible, Jacob left the land of Canaan uh, and went to the place called Padan Aram in about 1929 B.C. And the reason why he had to leave is because his brother was going to kill him. So his mom uh, said, you need to go go back up to my um, Padan Aram, uh, which is uh, Syria, modern-day Syria, because that's where their wider family lived. So Rebecca said, you need to go go find a wife from my family members. Jacob left in, uh, as best as we can tell, about 1929 B.C., and he was there. Now, uh, who's the first girl that he met? Rachel. Rachel. And he immediately went up and kissed her. <laughs> I want to marry you. And uh, her dad says, well, all right, you know, uh, let's see, Laban, that'd be uncle in this case here. Laban says, well, okay. You know, uh, you know, we can talk about that, but you're going to have to work for me for seven years first. So he worked for seven years. And then in 1922 B.C., we see that uh, he married Rachel. Now, here's the children that come out of that. And, um, you know, these, these numbers, these dates are not, you know, uh, precise. They're estimations based upon pulling together biblical chronology. So, you know, don't take this as being... Um, you know, absolute. But I think there's some pretty good basis for what you see. So Leah gave birth to Reuben in about 1921. Uh, Then Bela, the uh, maid of Rachel, had Dan in about 1920. Leah gave Simeon, gave birth to Simeon in about 1920. And then Bela had Naphtali in about 1919. And then Leah had Levi in about 1919. And then Leah had Judah in about 1918. And then Zilpah had Gad, Zilpah was Leah's maid, Zilpah had Gad in about 1917, and then Zilpah had Asher in about 1916, and then Leah, who did I say last? Asher? And then Leah had Issachar in about, uh, I'm out of, kind of out of uh, role here, 1917, and then Leah had Zebulun in about 1916, and then Leah had Dina, Dinah, in 1915. And then Rachel had Joseph uh, in about 1915. This was after you know, 14 years of being in the land of Syria when Jacob was up there. And then Benjamin uh, was born in about 1900. Um, and Benjamin, of course, uh, was born 
after they returned to the promised land. Benjamin was born to Rachel. So what happened is Jacob was there from 1929, uh, again, as best as we can tell, for 20 years, and then he left in 1909. He came back, uh, he, well, he left Syria, and then he lived for a few years in a place called Sukkoth, which was for about two years. This is not yet back in the land of Canaan, but he was there in Sukkoth, and then he returned to a place called Shechem. Now it's probably about 1903. And, uh, and then Jacob left Shechem and headed to a place called Bethel. And had, uh, Rachel had Benjamin in about 1900. So with four wives, Jacob ends up with 12 sons and one daughter in 21 years. That's about what happened. That's a lot of kids. And I mentioned the fact that, you know, we only read about Dina. But um, there's pretty good reason, as you look at the genealogies and all the births in the Bible, that there was a whole bunch of daughters being born as well, because the dominant focus is upon the sons. And it seems like, as you look at these genealogies, the places where you see the daughters mentioned are usually when there's some kind of notable event, like Dina, for example, got raped in Shechem, and that caused them to have to move on. It was a big conflict. But There's very good reason uh, as we look at how they all fit together. And in other places, sometimes you see the daughters. It mentions other daughters. But there was probably an equal number of daughters and sons being born in all of this. Now, what happens is this. When you look at, um, let's say, if you talk about the family of Israel, about how many were there when they migrated into Egypt? About 70, maybe a little over 70, depending upon how you count Joseph into this whole thing. But, you know, that's in like 1876 B.C. Pretty good reason for saying that they migrated into Egypt uh, in 1876. And then 430 years later is when they came out in 1446. So they were there for 430 years. And over 430 years, they grew to 2 million plus people. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is God's promise of blessing upon Abraham and his people of the Abrahamic covenant uh, because God said, like in Genesis 15, your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. In Genesis 22, he said they're going to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So they have grown to be this massive nation, and that's how many people came out, 2 million plus people, as we see in the um, numberings of um, the whole nation. Now here you are at the end of 40 years, and we see this census being taken again, and it shows us that they're still there. So, again, let's, uh, let's read through this uh, really quickly. I'm going to read really quickly and then just try to pull some theology out of this. Reuben, verses 5 to 11. Reuben, Israel's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, of Hanak, the family of the Hanakites, uh, of Palu, the family of the Paluites, of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the family of the Carmites, these are the families of the Reubenites, and these were numbered of them uh, 43,700. Now it goes on and it starts talking about uh, some of the tribes, uh, the sub-tribes and cl- sub-clans that came out of this. Uh, it mentions here the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. Now what's the significance of these two guys? The significance is that uh, these two guys are named because they were part of the rebellion that happened back in Numbers chapter uh, 15 uh, with uh, Korah and the rebellion that came up. There was a whole lot of sin that took place, you know, from 2 million people over 40 years. You can bet that there was a whole lot of sin. But the most, most 
conspicuous and significant kinds of things or what you see mentioned right here, these guys got wiped out because of they joined in with this rebellion uh, against Korah. Numbers chapter 16. Um, last point of observation right here. The tribe of Reuben started the 40 years with 43,730, and it ended with 46,500. It did decrease by 2,770 people. But that is a uh, very, very small decrease over a 40-year time period. Grace is at work, and this is the point. Verses 12 to 14, we come to Simeon, the sons of Simeon, according to their families, of Nemuel, the family of the Nemuelites, of Jamin, the family of the Jamanites, of Jachin, the family of the Jachinites, of Zerah, the family of the Zerahites, of Shaul, the family of the Shaulites. They began the 40 years with um, 59,300, and they ended with 37,100. That's a drop of, uh, you know, uh, quite a few people right here. 22,000 drop. Now, one of the things you have to remember is that if you went back to the last chapter, chapter 25, it was the family of Simeon had a guy by the name of Zimri. Zimri brought the uh, Midianite, Canaanite prostitute into his tent, and that's when Phineas went in and killed these guys. But it says that uh, 24,000 people got slaughtered in this judgment. And this family got hit real hard just a few weeks earlier. <laughs> you know, So these guys um, got hammered hard. Now, something interesting, when you read in here, it talks about Shaul um, down in verse 13. If you were to go back to Genesis chapter 46, verse 10, it makes mention that Shaul, by the way, so this Shaul really was a, a son of Simeon that was clear back there before they ever went into Egypt, okay? So the, so the immediate clans, that it, when it mentions the clans, these are people that, you know, started off 400 and some years earlier in Egypt. But it mentions in Genesis 46 that Shaul married a Canaanite woman, you say, wait, I thought the Canaanites were the bad guys. Well, are people from Las Vegas the bad guys? <laughs> or San Jose? Is that where you were born? I was born in Las Vegas and I grew up in San Jose. Oh, you got a double strike, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, but we have to understand something. You know, as we look at God's choice of Israel, that he's going to work through this nation to bring a Savior. We don't want to get a... Uh, a misplaced focus, and, and, and take the idea that grace that has chosen Israel to work to bring us a Savior somehow makes the Jews better people. They're not. They're just like everybody else. So when we look at the Canaanites that come into the Bible, uh, lest we be shocked about uh, marriage to a Canaanite, don't forget that when you come to Genesis chapter 38, we find out that Judah married a Canaanite, uh, a daughter of a man named Shua. We also know further that Judah's own son, Ur, married a Canaanite girl by the name of Tamar. We also know that Judah ended up hooking up with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, and he had two sons, and that includes Perez and Zerah, and Perez is the line of Jesus Christ. We also know, as you get to uh, the time of the conquest in a few chapters, that Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho, uh, Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute that came to faith in the living God and married into Israel. Rahab is in the ancestry of Jesus Christ as well. 
We also know that later on that there was a lady by the name of Ruth from Moab that ended up marrying into Israel, and she is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And we also know that David stole another man's wife, a Hittite by the name of Bathsheba, and Solomon, and eventually Jesus Christ come from this Hittite, Canaanite woman. We definitely don't want to get the mist. You know, misplaced idea that, well, the Jews are the pure people. <laughs> this is not about the Jews. The whole thing is about God working to bring salvation, right? It doesn't matter, you know, what tribe, tongue, people, or nation. You know, none of that matters. What matters is, are you willing to believe in the living God and turn to Him in faith? And if you do, you will experience that grace that takes you from beginning to end. Amen? Verses 15 to 18, we come to Gad, the sons of Gad. According to their family, I was thinking about when I lived in Escalante, Utah, a little tiny Mormon town. And uh, like, you know, the Mormons there, when they wanted to, uh, you know, kind of use God's name, they'd say, oh, Gads. They wouldn't say God, they'd say Gad, you know. know. The sons of Gad, according to the families of Zephon, the family of the Zephonites of of Haggai, the family of the Haggites, of Shuni, the family of the Shunites, of Ozni, the family of the Oznites, of Eri, the family of the Erites, of Arad, Eridites, of Arali, the family of the Aralites. These are the families. They were numbered 40,500. They started with 46,500 and ended with 40,500. They did decrease by 5,000, but they're all preserved. God is bringing them. You see, all the 12 tribes are being preserved. We come here to verse 19, Judah. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Now you saw that back in Genesis 38. You know, uh, Ur married Tamar, and it says he was, he was evil. God took his life. And so the next son, Onan, married her, but he would not let her get pregnant. And God saw his evil uh, for cutting out Tamar from having a child because Onan knew that that first child would bear the name of his dead brother. And he would not let her get pregnant. And God struck him down. Now, back in this whole situation, remember this is when Tamar, uh, this Canaanite daughter-in-law, she's stuck. She has no more you know, hope of getting a husband because Judah was not letting his youngest son, he was not going to let her, uh, Selah, marry her. So she has to dress up in her mind. She has to dress up like a prostitute. Nighttime seduces her father-in-law. He doesn't know it's her. Uh, They end up producing twin sons, uh, father-in-law and daughter-in-law, kind of the Jerry Springer show in the Bible. But God is still at work in all of this. God is still at work in all of this because now you don't know this when you read the book of Genesis. This is one of my favorite one of my favorite portions of the Bible. When you read about Genesis chapter 38, it simply says these things happened. And then it goes right back to Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. And all you know is, is that there's this, you know, uh, kind of sordid story that happens where Judah ended up having two more sons. See, he still had his one son Selah, and Selah went on to marry and have clans in Egypt. But then you find out that he's got these two other sons with his daughter-in-law. And that's the end of the story. Now this is taking place, these things took place in the year that Israel migrated down into Egypt, 1876 B.C. Fast forward roughly 600 years to roughly the year 
1200, 1250, somewhere in the 1200, mid-13th mid century, and there's a book in the Bible called the Book of Ruth. And we read this story about how Ruth left Moab and came with her mother-in-law, and she ends up marrying Boaz, and it's a Cinderella story. But then when you come to Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, it says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nash, and Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. Starts with Perez. Who's Perez? Perez is the son that was born to Tamar back in Genesis 38. So it's not until 600 years later in the Bible that you see this connection that this is the messianic line. This is how God is at work with all of these horrible things, including Judah and all of that mess, and then Naomi and her family and Ruth and Boaz. God's still at work. He's always at work. And that's why when we look at you know, uh, horrible stuff going on like was going on with uh, you know, Russia attacking Ukraine. I think it's horrible stuff. You have to trust God, though. But what happens with Judah, they began the wilderness with 74,600, and they ended with 76,500. They increased by 1,900. Um, and of course, we know from the book of Genesis, back in chapter 49, verse 10, the king is going to come from the tribe of Judah. But it's in Ruth, again, 600 years later, that's where we see the connection. It's going to come through Tamar's son, Perez. Verse 23, the sons of Issachar, according to their families, of Tola, the family of the Tolaites, of Puva, the family of the Punites, of Yashuv, the family of the Jashubites, of Shimron, the family of the Shimronites. They began, it says, with 54,400, they ended with 64,300. That's an increase of 9,900 over 40 years. Verse 26, the sons of Zebulun, according to their families. Zebulun was Leah's sixth son and is traced through the clans Sarad, Elon, Jalil. They began the 40 years with 57,400, ended with 60,500, an increase of 3,100. The seventh tribe is Joseph. Joseph was the first son of Jacob's wife, Rachel. Joseph's genealogy, as you know, gets traced through two of Joseph's sons because Joseph ended up with the blessing of the firstborn. How come Reuben didn't get it? Well, when you go back to Genesis, you find out that Reuben, after Rachel died, Reuben ended up sleeping with Jacob's wife, Bela, who had been the maid of Rachel. So Judah, not Judah, Reuben slept. Jacob found out about it, and uh, he was furious with Reuben. And so Joseph ended up receiving this double share of the inheritance. So what happened is that each of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, ended up with a full share of the inheritance. Manasseh is named in verses 29 to 34. Now, these two sons of Joseph were born, as we know, uh, when Joseph was in Egypt after Pharaoh appointed him uh, to rule over Egypt and do the billing project. Manasseh was the first of Joseph's two sons. Um, only one son is named from Manasseh. It's a guy by the name of Machir. Um, others are mentioned, Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemitah. And these... Um, 
appear to have been descended from Gilead, the son of Machir. Uh, they're named right here as uh, subclans that come up. Well, Manasseh began the uh, 40 years with 32,200, ended with 52,700. Nice increase. Ephraim is in verses 35 to 38. The three clans of Ephraim are named in this passage, um, Shuthela, Becker, and Tahan. Ephraim began the 40 years with 40,500, ended with 32,500, a drop of 8,000. And for whatever reason, we don't know, you know the significance of why some had more and some had less. But they're still there. Benjamin, verses 39 to 41, the eighth tribe. Benjamin was the second son born to Rachel. And remember, Benjamin was the only one that was born in the land of Canaan. And when he was born, Rachel died. Uh, as you look at, and I'm not going to go through any of these technical details, but as you look at different places where the genealogies are mentioned, um, there are sometimes spelling differences and these different genealogies. Um, if you really want to study you know, some of these orth- orthographic kinds of dis- differences, I'll give you my notes. You can gladly go through them, but this is not something we want to talk about. You know, What happens with Benjamin? Uh, they had a population census of uh, 45,600 right here. They started with 35,400, ended with 45,600, 10,600 increase. Verses 42 to 43, we see Dan. Dan was the first son of Bela, Rachel's maid. Uh, only one clan is named from Dan, and that's a guy by the name of Shuham. Uh, he began with 62,700, ended with 64,400. Little increase right here. Verse 44, Asher. Asher was the second son of Zilpah, Leah's maid. Uh, the only ones that are named right here for the clans, the ones that come from him, are Imna, Ishvi, and Bariah. Uh, it also mentions that he had a daughter named Sarah, S-E-R-A-H. Um, from this passage, uh, we see the name of Sarah. But again, you know, I'm, I'm going to say this again, that we have every reason to believe that wherever you see these genealogies named and it talks about all the sons, there were daughters, probably equal numbers of daughters. Well, how come they're not mentioned as well? It's a patriarchal culture. Genealogies and family names are carried down through the sons, and that's just the way it is. Whenever you see one of the daughters named, it's usually because there's some kind of um, issue that's going on, some kind of significant thing. Well, Asher began with 41,500 and ended with 53,400. Verse 48, we see Naphtali. Naphtali was the second son born to Bela, Rachel's maid. Uh, his clans are named as being Jahzeel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. His tribe decreased from 53,400 to 45,400. And with this, Moses now, in verses 51 to 56, gives a summary of the tribes who were available for war. These are those who were numbered of the sons of Israel, 601,730. That's a nice size army. You know, 2 million people and, uh, you know, uh, 600,000 of them are men over 20 years of age. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger group you shall give increase to their inheritance, and to the smaller group you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who are numbered to them. 
but the land shall be divided by lot. In other words, get out the dice. It's going to be Las Vegas, you know? All right, what do you get? Uh, you know, it wasn't dice, but lot was a way of um, making that selection. Uh, they shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes that are fathers. According to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and smaller groups. So we have a number that has been given for war, but also this number is here for land inheritance. Now, there's only one tribe that we still haven't talked about. Who's that? Levi. Levi is mentioned separately because Levi does not get a land inheritance. Levi was the third son of Leah, and as we know, this was the tribe chosen by God, and God said, this is going to be the tribe that cares for the worship, uh, the worship cult, and the cult means the, the worship system. Doesn't mean you know anything bad when we use that word in that sense. Um, but Levi was the tribe of uh, to lead and care for the worship, and out of the tribe of Levi came Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. And God selected Aaron, uh, you know, at the time of the Exodus, and said, "Aaron is going to be the family of the priesthood." So the entire worship system was in care of the uh, priests, and then the Levites at a wider level. And what God told them earlier, as we look at the selection of the Levites, God said, you guys are not going to get uh, ranches and farms. You're not going to get the big land inheritance. I am your inheritance. And your support is not going to come by working your own fields. Your support is going to come from the tithe that all the other tribes make to Israel. And uh, then your income is going to come from the tithes that they make. And that's how it worked. Levi grew from 22,000 to 23,000 over the 40 years. Grace was at work. 63, verse 63, we see the summary of the census. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness at Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man of them was left except Caleb and Joshua. Now you remember, of course, that back in Numbers 13 and 14, they came to the edge of the promised land. God said, go for it. It's all yours. And uh, when, the tri- when the spies came back, they said, it's pretty nice land. But tell you what, I don't think we can do it because these guys have huge armies. You know, uh, you know it's like Ukraine trying to take on you know, Russia. Ukraine can't fight against Russia. I mean, Ukraine, you know, is like, you know, probably 20% of the military capacity of Russia, you know, and you say, these guys can't take on Russia. Well, they can if God's with them. We don't know how this is going to unfold. But the point is this, that, you know, the spies came back and said, we can't do it. And so they persuaded all of the uh, nation, including the 10 other spies, 10 of the spies said, we can't do it. There was only two guys out of the spies that said, yeah, we can. God said so, Joshua and Caleb. And God said, everybody that's over 20 years of age is going to die over the next 40 years, and I'll let Joshua and Caleb go in. And this is exactly what happened. God's grace took them through that entire time period. Now, coming down to verses 1 to 11, there's one more inheritance issue that we have to make note of. You see, in the ancient Near East, this is not true only for Israel, but it was true in general, inheritance went through the sons. And so the laws of Israel followed that same idea of inheritance coming through the sons. But what do you do if there's no sons? 
This is exactly what we have right here. In verse 1, there was a man by the name of Zelophadad, and he had no sons, so he had daughters. Then the daughters of Zelophadad, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machar, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near, and these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar, the priest and the leaders, uh, at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but our father died in his own sin, and he had no sons. When they say he died in his own sin, all they're saying is that he died along with all the rest of the uh, people over 20. He wasn't judged by God. It was just he died in the wilderness. But they said, Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family? Because he had no son. Give us a possession among our father's brothers. First observation, these women were perfectly justified in pleading their case. Hey, we have no brothers. Why should our land inheritance be lost from our father because we don't have any brothers? And uh, Moses said, you know what? I'll go talk to God about this. Uh, Moses went straight to God, and God gave a very speedy reply. Verse 5, Moses brought his case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. You shall transfer their inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall give it to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give the inheritance to his father's brothers. If he has no father, has no brothers, you shall give his inheritance to the nearest relative of the family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be a statutory ordinance to the sons of Israel, just as the Lord has commanded." So basically, here's how it goes. It would go to a son or next to a daughter, next to a brother, next to an uncle, and then to wider family. And, you know, really that's how inheritance law works, you know, still today as far as uh, the general flow of inheritance laws. Now what happens is, this is interesting because, you know, God gave the general commandments in the law of Moses, but here's a situation that, you know, kind of had not been addressed. Well, all right. We're not covering our bases? All right, fine. We'll fix it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what you got to do. It's like if something hasn't been addressed, you know, you bring it up and you say, hey, you know, what about the girls? You know, what about the women? Fine. We'll, you know, we'll fix that. And that's how it has to be in church, right? You know, if there's something that you're not, you could do better or you need to do differently, talk about it, fix it. But here's the point that I want you to see. Grace is at work in all of this. Now, chapter 27, verses 12 to 23, here's a second step of preparation. Joshua is going to succeed Moses. Sad to say, but it's time for Moses to pass on the scene. Now, you know, Moses spent his first 40 years living as a prince in Egypt. Then he killed an Egyptian. He had to flee from Egypt to avoid you know, being executed. He ended up living for 40 years out in the uh, um, Midianite desert and the Sinai desert, raising flocks for his father-in-law Jethro. Got married. God appeared to Moses, said, go back to Egypt, set my people free. And the next 40 years, he was shepherding not sheep, but uh, the people of Israel. So 120 years. He's 120 years. And you know that's, that's up there. 
Um, but what's going to happen is, is that, you know, they're getting ready to take possession of the promised land, and God's going to say, sorry, man, you can't go in. There's, there's an incident that happened. So verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, go up on this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. When you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people. You're going to die. <laughs> you know, um, Saturday when I went and saw my dad last Saturday, you know, I'm talking to him and, you know, just telling him I love him. He's, you know, you know on morphine and um, my, you know, I called his sister, and they've not had a good relationship for a long time. But you know, Maureen was able to say, "I love you, Lee," and called my two sisters in Vegas, and they were able to say that. And one of the sisters, and this is all great, but she, you know, it's my stepsister. My dad married her mom, you know, and Annie was saying, "Oh, Dad, you know, man, you got your hip replaced, and it's going to be nice. You know, you can get out and." Maybe do some fishing and hunting. She was, you know, she was trying to encourage him, and, you know, and she knew that he was in a bad situation, you know, but she was just trying to, you know, speak, you know, hopeful things to him, you know. God bless her. Yeah, you know, Scott came by, Tim King came by, and Scott came by that same day. Thank you so much. Um, and, um, you know, but uh, it's like, no, you're not going to pull out of this one. You know, I mean, I didn't tell him that, not, not when I'm talking to him, but just, Dad, you know, yeah, you, your faith is in the Lord. You're going to see the Lord. You're going to be with him, you know. So, you know, end of the road. Well, this is it. God's telling Moses, end of the road, Moses. Uh, I, you're going to be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. For Gathered to your people means you're going to die. And you're going to be there in heaven with the rest of your ancestors. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. Now, this is back in Numbers chapter 20. This is one of the many times when God gave them water. But, you know, if you go back to the earlier time uh, when they first came out of uh, Egypt, there was one situation where God said, Moses, uh, go strike that rock and I'm going to bring water out of it, right? And so he struck the side of the mountain like a cliff down in a canyon. God brought water out. There was water in those, in those hills. When you get to Numbers chapter 20, same thing. People were complaining. It's 40 years of complaining. And Moses, he's furious with the people because they're just always complaining. So God says, Moses, go speak to the rock. I'll bring some water. And Moses yells at the people, and then he strikes the rock twice with his staff. God brings water out. But then afterwards, God said, you were really disrespectful to me. So you're not going to go into the land. What? No, Moses, you were irreverent. You disrespected me. And that's what's happening right here. Very painful. Now, Aaron was part of that as well. When this happened, both Moses and Aaron had really kind of lost their temper and I mean, at a human level, we can't blame these guys, you know. But God said, you were irreverent. You're not going to go in. Moses, Aaron has already died, but now God says, Moses, you're going to die now as well. So we have to have a successor. Verse 15, then Moses spoke to the Lord saying, may the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, and who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep who have no shepherd. This is a wonderful God-centered, people-centered prayer. 
He's not complaining. He's just saying, oh, please, God, I'm asking you that you would bring somebody uh, who will love you and serve you. Well, God answers here in verses 18 to 23 with four key points. Number one, notice the identity and character of this new leader. The Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. And that likely is referring to God's Holy Spirit here. He was a man of character. And he has been there beside Moses throughout the entire 40 years. We go back to Numbers chapter 11 where he was younger. And Joshua was there serving Moses for out, throughout the entire 40 years, very faithfully. A man of God. Secondly, you have to have public recognition of who's going to take Moses' place. So verse 18, it says, Lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before the congregation and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all of the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. This is going to be a public recognition um, that everybody can know that Joshua has been chosen by God. We see the prophetic role of Joshua in verse 21. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel uh, with him, even all the congregation. Now, what is this Urim, Urim, Urim? You know, there's another in most places called the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, they were stones that were in the breastplate of the priest, and in some way, and we don't know, we don't know how this worked, but in some way, uh, God would give prophetic messages to the priest using these stones. Don't know quite what it was. Nobody knows exactly what it was. But um, Joshua would have this. God communicating through the priest. You see, remember how, how did God used to communicate to Moses? Face to face. Moses would go into the very presence of God. So God is still going to be communicating to Joshua, but it's not going to be that direct kind of um, communicative process that uh, Moses himself enjoyed. Well, fourth key point right here about Joshua, verses 22 to 23, speedy appointment. Verse 22, Moses did, just as the Lord commanded him, he took Joshua, set him before Eleazar the priest and before the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Listen, sad as it is, there comes a time for retirement. Your greasy chicken dinner and your gold watch, and then they kick you out the door. (laughs) That's life, right? Moses is getting his greasy chicken dinner and uh, his watch, and God says, that's it. Now, it's in Deuteronomy that they actually go up in their tongue on on the mountain, and God says, okay, look across, you know, like 10 miles. Take a look. (laughs) You can't go in. (laughs) You're going to die right here. And we don't know exactly the place. God did not let anybody know exactly where Moses got buried because they probably would have made an idolatrous shrine out of it. Well, okay, as we close... A generation comes and a generation goes, but the world remains. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, life goes on. Now, if you're looking at just life under the sun, this is a big message in Ecclesiastes. If you're looking at life as just horizontal, life under the sun, it's monotonous and dreary. (laughs) You know, again, it's kind of fresh in my mind with my dad passing away. 
yesterday I was up there in this uh, restaurant where I would take my dad, you know, and we'd buy a pizza. You know, I lived with my dad, uh, I don't know, all total, probably just him and me for, you know, probably about six, seven years when I was a kid. Uh, let's see, fourth grade, fifth grade. Yeah. We ate out a lot, you know, two guys. You know, okay, what's it going to be tonight? Is it going to be pizza? Or we'll go to the bar and get a steak? Or is it going to be Hilda's for Mexican food? Uh, <laughs> grew up eating out a lot. A lot of pizza. It's catching up with me now. <laughs> but anyhow, I was in there at this place in Woodland Park, and, you know, uh, I started crying. But, you know, I had a chance to be close to my dad for a while. He was a, he was a good guy. He was different. You guys know uh, the movie Forrest Gump? Remember when the school principal was talking to his mom? Miss Gump, y'all ball is different. She says, we're all different. My dad's a little more different than most. <laughs> but he was a good guy. He was a really good guy. So anyhow, you know, as, I, as I'm thinking about this, you know, Moses passing off the scene, it's like, well, that's just life, isn't it? That, you know what? Grace is still at work. And that's, that's our hope. God's grace is always at work. Amen? Amen? Father, thank you for your grace, and this is our hope that uh, your promises never fail. Thank you so much for giving us uh, your son, Jesus Christ, and that you have done for us what we could not do. Our hope is in your son, and we believe in your son, and we know that he has conquered the curse, and we know that he's returning to bring a restoration to this fallen world. And we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's people said, amen. amen.